I'm Kate Daniels. Getting good information and being informed are a couple of key elements to planning the way we live our life and also doing what we can to have a healthy life. The Zika virus is a disease that seems new to us that has instilled some fear and concern, and rightly so. But it's important to know more about it and know what it is that we need to do for ourselves, our family, our community. So it's great to have Dr. Jonathan Epstein with us to provide us with some of these key insights and information. Dr. Jonathan Epstein, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us today. Thank you very much for having me. You are doing such important and incredible work, and I'm so grateful, really, that you are here today to give us some insights and perspective, educate us on all of this frenzy, I think, that we've been having around the whole thing with Zika virus. It's kind of the latest disease that's become a real hot topic. And it's not just a local thing. We have this big fear of it spreading all over. And we're seeing it here in the United States these days, aren't we? Yeah, that's right. And Zika virus is a particularly interesting disease because it's one we've known about for many years. In fact, it was first discovered in Africa in 1947. The first human case was recognized in 1953. But I think because it was originally seen as a mild disease and just dismissed as another tropical disease that we didn't need to worry about, and certainly not here in the United States. And so, you know, here we are decades later where Zika's made its way around the world into South America and now the United States. And so um, it's certainly got our attention now. And interestingly, as you give us that perspective, it brings to mind very much what we faced just a couple of years ago with Ebola. Yeah. And It's a tricky situation when thinking about these emerging diseases. And what I mean is these new diseases we're seeing either pop up in new places. They might be old diseases we've known about, but, you know, popping up in new places or changing the way that they affect people. And certainly when Ebola emerged in West Africa, that was a new location that people hadn't anticipated, and it became the biggest Ebola outbreak we've had in history. Um, Certainly not the first one, but I think it really got our attention, certainly got the world's attention in terms of its severity. And what's important for people to understand is this is not going to get better anytime soon. We're going to see more and more of these diseases emerging in new places. Sometimes there'll be new diseases we haven't recognized before, and we have to be prepared for that. And so we run the risk. It's so important that we're having this conversation and that people um, learn about infectious disease and, and what triggers these outbreaks to happen. But we don't want to either get overly alarmed or either overly complacent about it, because the truth is we have to really start to get a handle on what's causing these diseases to emerge and we need to change the way we're behaving to reduce the risk of it happening again. And that, of course, is the key here. And the fact that it was just a couple of years ago with Ebola, something that we just thought was very localized, and all of a sudden we saw these cases erupt in different parts of the world. Now we have Zika doing the same thing. What is happening then that is causing these diseases to be spread like this, that we're seeing them worldwide? What's really interesting is I think people don't realize just how closely linked our health is to that of animals, both domestic animals and wildlife, and really in in the context of our environment. More than half of all the known viruses that cause disease in people originally came from animals. We call them zoonotic, which means they're able to be transmitted between animals and people. And when you think about just diseases that are emerging, 
uh, like Ebola, like Zika virus, if you remember SARS, the SARS epidemic from the early 2000s, uh, these viruses, about three-quarters of them, come from animals, and particularly wild animal populations. And it has nothing to do with any major uh, change that's happening in terms of viruses in these animals. These are viruses and other pathogens, bacteria or fungus, that have been in animals for a very long time. What is changing is the way that we interact with animals, and that's become a really accelerating process. The fact that people's, well, human population is expanding, we're moving to new places, expanding our agriculture and our cities into what used to be forested environments or pristine environments. So it's really, in effect, bringing us closer into contact with wild animals, and it brings our livestock into closer contact with wild animals. And it's through those interactions that viruses like Ebola are able to jump from wildlife into people or from wildlife into livestock sometimes and then into people. If you think about bird flu, which is something that's on everybody's mind as having great risk for causing a global pandemic, bird flu, in fact, most influenzas originate in migratory birds, make their way into poultry and then into people. And so it's this relationship we're having now with animals that's really being forced by human activity and human behavior that's causing more and more of these diseases to emerge. And so a big part of this, of course, is as our population is exploding and we are moving into these areas where before we didn't because it was the animal's domain or we didn't need those areas, as you said, we're going to see more and more of this occur. Absolutely. Uh, This is entirely human-driven, this phenomenon, which is why we need to get a better understanding of how these things happen and, importantly, where they're likely to happen and when. When we start to understand those processes, and believe me, the science has gotten a lot better in understanding this, we we do have a better understanding of why diseases emerge, then we need to focus on human activities like agricultural expansion, global travel and trade. We move our animals around the world, and we ourselves can get on a plane and be anywhere in the world in less than 24 hours, and we take our diseases with us. And so just being aware of this and starting to really, uh, you know, change the way we do things to reduce risk is, is what we need to do now. So case in point, with the Zika virus and the recent Olympics, we certainly saw how many athletes, and I think probably a lot of those who would have gone just to attend the Olympics, decided not to because they were fearful of the Zika virus. Yeah, and it's interesting because as far as we know now, and I think we'll we'll have to wait a little bit to see for sure what impact the Olympics actually had on the spread of Zika virus, but chances are it's going to be minimal. I think there was a lot of apprehension about it, and I can understand that, but uh, one of the reasons that they didn't need to cancel the Olympics, they didn't cancel the Olympics, is that in many cases, well, people are coming from countries that either already have Zika virus or there are already travelers going to parts of the world beyond Brazil where you know, they might get infected with Zika and bring it home. So really, the Olympics, although it seems like a high-risk area, it occurred at a time of year when uh, mosquito populations were on the wane. It was into the winter season. Transmission was actually declining around Rio and Brazil. So you know, we didn't hear about too many new cases that have been picked up. And again, you know, we'll have to wait and see a little bit as people return home and, and people will get tested and we'll get more data on that. But I think some of it was, was fear more than, you know, really just uh, reality. But at the same time, what was good about it is it really raised awareness about Zika virus and ultimately prevention, pr- protecting yourself against mosquito bites and understanding how Zika is transmitted became really important factors in probably limiting Zika transmission. 
So that is something that worked really well. There was heightened awareness. People responded to it. It didn't seem like there was a lot of extra fear around it. People maybe changed their plans, but there wasn't uh, like a craziness about it versus what... I don't know that it's necessarily crazy, but around Florida, I understand there have been some recent cases, but the news is reporting that people are still not paying attention to that. Is it because they think, oh, well, you know, it's not here. It's in other countries, not the U.S.? Yeah, this is a fundamental challenge, I think, with the human condition is, you know, until we're absolutely panicked about something, it's very difficult for us to take uh, precaution and, and preventive measures. It's all about how we perceive risk. If we don't think of something as being risky or dangerous, we just don't pay attention to it, even though the risk may really be there and, and is very real. And so, for example, when, if you remember when Ebola virus made its way into the United States, when we had um, health care providers that were returning to the states infected, um, it, it was hugely concerning, particularly the cases in, uh, in Texas where, you know, there was a local transmission to the nurse Nina Pham in hospital. Uh, suddenly we had an Ebola case on U.S. soil and there was potential transmission going on. And Ebola is a very terrifying disease. And so people were paying attention. And it was appropriate for us to, you know, be very alert to that and, and um, put in all the necessary actions in terms of containment and isolation, etc. Now, Zika virus is, is very different from Ebola in one main respect, is that it normally doesn't cause severe disease in adults. Most adults who get Zika virus really might not even know they're infected. They may not have any symptoms, or if they do have symptoms, they're fairly mild. You know, rash, fever, headache, or malaise, and then it goes away. The, the real risk with Zika virus, of course, is to pregnant women and to the fetus, where it can cause severe neurologic damage to the fetus and developmental uh, damage. And so, uh, you know, that does make it a very serious disease, but I think people consider it, oh, it's mild and it's not really harmful, so I don't need to worry. And we're only now just starting to see local transmission. We actually have thousands of cases in the United States of people who have traveled overseas, become infected, and returned home. But what we're seeing in Florida is local transmission, which means that mosquitoes in Florida are picking up that virus from someone who's infected and transmitting it to a new person who has no history of travel. That's entirely expected. We're not surprised by this. And in fact, we, we expect to see transmission occur in other areas around the, the Gulf of Mexico where they have mosquitoes that spread Zika virus and where there are cases of Zika from travel. So we're going to see more and more of this, but unfortunately, Florida has become the first case of it. And the mosquitoes then that are transmitting it, they have picked up the infection from someone who is carrying the Zika virus. And these are just the a normal, if you will, mosquito that is on this soil, and they're able to then take the virus and infect another person. Is that how it works? Absolutely. The, the primary way that Zika virus is transmitted is by mosquito bite, and there are two species of mosquitoes that transmit it. Uh, Aedes aegypti is the mosquito that is the, the main vector or the main type of mosquito, and we have that throughout the southern United States and, and up the Atlantic coast. And the other one, Aedes albopictus, occurs a bit further north even than aegypti, so it ranges uh, further up into you know, southern New England, the tri-state area. And so, um, you know, there's definitely the possibility of someone who's infected being bitten by one of these types of mosquitoes. That mosquito then picks up the virus and bites someone else and spreads it. So that's the main way Zika is transmitted. The challenge, I think, in terms of uh, really 
containing and controlling Zika is that it also spreads through sexual transmission, and that can make it fairly insidious. Again, being a mild disease in most people who get infected, one might travel to an area that has Zika, become infected, may not even know it, and if you're not sick, you don't go to a doctor, you don't go to the hospital, and you're not likely to be tested for it. So really unknowingly, you could then spread it to your sexual partner. And so that occurs um, probably less frequently. You know, the, the data is still coming in in terms of how many sexual transmitted, sexually transmitted cases there are. Uh, but this is going to be um, a challenge in terms of limiting its spread. But again, mosquito spread is the primary way that it goes from person to person. And I believe I recall hearing in the recent past that he, even here in Washington State, we had a case of someone with the virus. I imagine, and I don't know the history of that, they would probably have been someone who had traveled elsewhere and come home. Absolutely. Washington's a little far north for the range of these mosquitoes, but most states in the country now have cases of Zika virus, and they're primarily travel-related. In fact, they're, they're entirely travel-related, with the exception of these 14 cases in Florida now that have been detected. Now, again, these are cases that we've noticed in terms of local transmission, but we're not going to be as surprised at all when we start seeing cases in other parts of the country around the Gulf, so Louisiana, Texas, uh, we expect to see some local transmission there where we have the mosquitoes, where we know that there are cases, probably travel-related. So um, we'll see more and more of this. And, you know, this is not new for us in terms of mosquito-borne diseases. Um, if you remember West Nile virus, that was introduced into the United States in 1999 through New York, uh, and that was a travel-related case that got picked up by mosquitoes here, a different type of mosquito than the one that spread Zika, but a mosquito that bites both birds and people. And so West Nile virus was getting into birds and moving across the United States. And as mosquitoes were biting birds and then people, people were getting sick uh, And as it was spreading and spreading. And we now have West Nile virus pretty much everywhere in the continental United States. And we, every year we have seasonal clusters of West Nile fever. These are such important pieces of information, getting a historic perspective, understanding what is going on with us, with our world. And so with Dr. Jonathan Epstein this morning, who's with the uh, Conservation Medicine at EcoHealth Alliance, you have a lot of this, all of this information available at your website, correct, Dr. Epstein? Absolutely. Uh, at ecohealthalliance.org. Our, our main mission is to understand and prevent pandemics, and we understand the relationships between people, animals, and the environment. And so looking at how things like deforestation, global travel, wildlife trade, how these things impact the likelihood of new diseases emerging from wild animals and getting into human populations, we're really trying to stop the next pandemic, the next HIV, the next SARS, or the next bird flu, and get ahead of that curve. It's really time to, to stop being surprised by all these new emerging diseases and, uh, and prevent the next one from happening. And also in having this kind of conversation and referring our listeners to ecohealthalliance.org, this is about education so that there's not going to be great panic about this. An understanding will hopefully get us to understand why it's happening. And secondly, to know what we can do to change things. Yeah, and it's really important that people understand that they can play a very important role in preventing diseases from spreading. Sometimes we, we speak at these very high levels about 
global disease and, and infectious disease spreading around the world. And it can become overwhelming or people might think, well, well what can I do here? You know, I, I don't travel, I don't do much. And really everything from the personal level up to, you know, population levels matters. So, in, for example, with Zika virus, you might be able to ensure that your environment around you doesn't have any standing water. That's one of the big risk factors for breeding mosquitoes. These mosquitoes that spread Zika virus, they need very little water to breed, only about a teaspoon of water, and they can lay eggs and thousands of mosquitoes are born. And so by preventing having standing water in your backyard, you can really reduce the risk of mosquitoes breeding and spreading Zika around your neighborhood. And then on a personal level, making sure that if you're in an area where there is Zika virus transmission, that you wear long clothing, that you use insect repellent with at least 30% DEET. Now, these recommendations are available on the CDC's website at cdc.gov, which is an excellent source of information about Zika virus. But the point being that there's a lot you can do to protect yourself, but also protect others in doing so. And then at the higher level, I think as a society, as a global community, then we start to need to look at large-scale behaviors like deforestation, travel, the way that we're expanding our agriculture, these bigger kinds of ideas that are really influencing emerging diseases. And we need to change the way we do things. You know, it's very difficult to sit back and say, okay, just stop farming, stop hunting, stop contacting wildlife in a way that's going to cause disease. That isn't very realistic. And certainly there are many people around the world who really don't have alternatives to hunting wildlife or having large farms next to forests. So we recognize that many of these things are necessary as human populations grow and the demand for protein and nutrition increases. So rather, we just need to understand what specifically it is that puts us at risk and modify the way we do things so that we're doing it more safely and understanding that we need to live with and interact with wildlife and nature in a safer way all really important words of wisdom and awareness. And so again, let's mention the website so that that's a really great touchstone for additional information. Sure. If you go to www.ecohealthalliance.org, you'll learn all about the research programs we're doing around the world. We're a, a global organization based in New York, but we work with local partners. So we work with scientists, we work with government agencies in about 30 countries around the world, particularly in parts of the world that are vulnerable to emerging diseases. And we're working with wildlife departments, departments of public health, departments of agriculture, to work together to detect not just the viruses and diseases we know about, but we have a very unified program to start to understand new viruses, to discover new viruses, some of which might have the ability to jump from animals into people and cause a pandemic. And the sooner we can detect and be aware of those new viruses and understand where they're most likely to jump from animals into people, then we can start putting systems in place to reduce the risk of that happening. And you can learn more about it at our website. And what's interesting, there is a terminology called spillover that really encompasses all of what you've just been mentioning, Dr. Epstein. The word spillover really refers to a pathogen or a germ like a virus or bacteria jumping from an animal reservoir, that's an animal that normally carries it, into people. And probably important to mention that spillover can work both ways. We, act, we certainly have human diseases that make their way into animals uh, and can cause great harm. And so it, it's definitely a two-way street in terms of our health relationship with animals. But when we talk about spillover, we really think about diseases like Ebola, 
like bird flu and probably most significantly like HIV that began as a chimpanzee virus, a non-human primate virus that made its way into people through the process of hunting and butchering animals, contracting this virus, and then it adapted to people and became one of the most significant pandemics of our time. And so what we're really trying to do is understand these processes by which viruses spill over or jump from animals into people and change the way we do things to prevent that from happening. And if people are interested in learning more about how viruses do spill over, a really fantastic documentary was produced by Howard Hughes Medical Institute that's available on pbs.org, uh, the website for PBS television called Spillover. And there you'll see really vividly how Ebola made its way from wildlife into people in West Africa and then spread to become one of the biggest Ebola outbreaks ever. You learn about Zika virus, you learn about some other viruses you may not have heard about like Nipah virus, which is one that I study that's carried by giant fruit bats throughout Asia. And when it jumps into people, it causes a central nervous system disease that's fatal about three quarters of the time. You'll learn about what we're doing to understand how these viruses circulate in wild animals and what we're doing that brings us into contact such that they spill over. And almost all the time, these spillover events are very accidental. There are things that people do that bring us into closer contact with wildlife, and these viruses then have the opportunity to jump. But it's very rare that you know, wildlife seeking some kind of contact with people. So again, something that is so wonderful in the sense of education and giving us awareness so that we can be more informed and proactive in what we do and how we do things so we realize the consequences that do exist. And so, Dr. Epstein, when you were mentioning with Zika, because that's kind of the at the forefront of our minds right now, and its transmission sexually, what happens in that case? Is there perhaps some sort of an antidote, an antibiotic medicine that would help people who have it so it's not transmitted? Or does it outlive its life in the body? What happens? No, unfortunately, we don't have any drugs and we don't have a vaccine for Zika virus right now. Uh, there's a lot of research going on to develop a vaccine, but that's a ways off. And so for the moment, prevention is the really the best thing we can do to protect ourselves from Zika virus. And that's insect repellent, long clothing, the mosquitoes that spread Zika virus bite throughout the day. So this isn't just something we need to worry about at dusk and dawn. But, you know, if you're in an area where Zika is spreading, you need to protect yourself all day long. And in terms of sexual transmission, well, you know, the CDC has issued recommendations that if you're traveling to an area where there is Zika virus and you're not symptomatic, you don't know you have it, but you're concerned, then they recommend waiting for about eight weeks before engaging in unprotected sexual activity. And that's to give the body opportunity to get rid of the virus. So it doesn't stay with us forever, but one of the challenges is we don't yet know exactly how long it does stay in the body. So, for example, in men, it's been detected in semen for several months, and the research is still ongoing. And so we have to be very careful about, one, not getting infected in the first place, but then if there's concern that one is infected, to really uh, take measures to protect a sexual partner from getting infected. And certainly the most vulnerable or at-risk people would be pregnant women, where you really want to prevent infection to protect the fetus. And in terms of any kinds of signs of Zika being present, you were mentioning how there might be a low fever, we might feel malaise. Is it possible that we might not even have any kind of sign of it in our bodies that we've become infected? We would have had to have had a mosquito bite, correct? 
Yes, well, absolutely, or had sexual intercourse with someone who was infected, but right. let's primarily mosquito bite. And uh, absolutely, you know, in fact, most of the cases, about 80% of cases are asymptomatic or don't have any symptoms at all. And you can think about it. You might wake up any day of the week and feel a little off, a little yucky. We say, oh, I'm a little fluey today. That's not to suggest you have Zika virus, but that's just to say that we often just dismiss those kinds of mild symptoms. And so you could imagine that many people, if they are infected, may not recognize it. The symptoms include things like fever. You might see a rash on your body. Uh, infection around the eyes. These things go away within a week or two of when they start. And so, you know, again, very mild, and then your, your body clears the infection and you get better, and that's that. And so, unless you know you've been to an area where there is Zika virus and, and it occurs to you that I better get this looked at, you know, many people won't get diagnosed. And so, that's, that's really the challenge in terms of uh, preventing Zika virus from spreading. For those who do have symptoms and they know that they've been to a place where there is Zika virus, it's a little more clear-cut. They should go to a hospital, they should go see a doctor and get tested, particularly pregnant women. And getting that diagnosis, what is the kind of testing that goes on? Well, the test is challenging. There are hospitals that are able to administer the test. It actually tests for the virus itself, and so uh, it, it needs to occur within a period that you're actively infected. And the, the trouble is that if you're beyond that period, if, if your body has gotten rid of the virus and you have evidence of having been infected, which are antibodies, if your body has made antibodies to Zika virus, the tests are less reliable because they might cross-react with other viruses that are related to Zika virus, like dengue virus, uh, or even West Nile virus, they're all in the same family of viruses. And if you've been exposed to other viruses as well that are related, your body may have antibodies that fool the test. And so the real challenge is to get tested while you're sick or you know, soon after you've traveled when you might be infected if you're concerned. And really they're targeting folks who are pregnant uh, or think they're pregnant and have traveled to an area where there is Zika virus. So um, the testing is challenging. And again, really the best thing to do is prevent mosquito bites and prevent getting infected in the first place. Sounds like really sage advice. And so during this time, and we're thinking more in terms of more tropical areas, we were mentioning Florida earlier on, and some of the areas of the East Coast where it's a warmer climate, there is more of opportunity or more of a chance of in being infected with Zika virus if we are not taking these precautions, right? Absolutely. And it isn't just the East Coast. We really think about the Gulf Coast. So, you know, Louisiana's just had tremendous flooding, unfortunately. Um, but with, there's going to be a lot of standing water and there will probably be an increase in mosquito populations, you know, following this period of time. So people need to be vigilant in Louisiana and parts of Texas. So really anywhere in the southern United States where there are typically, you know, these types of mosquitoes, Aedes aegypti, Albopictus, um, and Zika cases, people do need to be vigilant and do need to be aware that there's the possibility that local transmission may occur. And in fact, we're expecting to see that happen. If you want to learn about Zika virus and other emerging diseases, please visit our website, www.ecohealthalliance.org. But really the best information in terms of the latest Zika virus news and how to protect yourself specifically is at the CDC's website. So I urge people to go to cdc.gov to get really up-to-date uh, and terrific information on personal protection, on which parts of the United States uh, there are cases and how many cases. And the CDC even has resources that discuss uh, where mosquito transmission is occurring. 
and, and not just in the United States, but around the world. So it's a fantastic resource, and I really urge people to visit it if they have any concern about Zika virus. But I want people to know that there's a lot being funded by the U.S. government, the U.S. Agency for International Development, called the component called PREDICT, and EcoHealth Alliance is part of a consortium working under PREDICT. And what it is doing is setting up an early warning system around the world to detect new viruses, new viruses in wild animals, in domestic animals, and in people, viruses that may have made the jump but not yet been detected. And, and why this is important is we're really trying to change the paradigm of reacting being on the back foot when it comes to disease outbreaks, but rather getting ahead of the curb, understanding where in the world diseases are most likely to emerge, what those viruses may be, and having systems in place in countries where these diseases tend to emerge so that they can never become pandemics. And people should be aware of this because, you know, historically we've always simply reacted and, and we're still going to see outbreaks and we're still going to need systems in place to respond to those outbreaks. But there is a significant global effort now to get on the other side of that and, and really start to understand the diversity of viruses out there in nature, where they're likely to emerge, and really make sure we have better systems in place to prevent that from happening. And uh, the last thing I would mention, too, is a new initiative under that called the Global Virome Project, which is much like the Human Genome Project, but the Global Virome Project is going to characterize and identify all the viruses being carried by animals around the world. This is a 10-year effort that's going to really give us the information we need to better understand the risk of which of these viruses are likely to cause the next pandemic and hopefully stop it from happening. That is just incredible. And that's all happening because of all the research, well, worldwide, but EcoHealth Alliance is a big part of it, isn't it? Yes, we've been a partner in this for about seven years and, and hopefully for years to come. But there are many really good organizations and scientists working together around the world to really stop pandemics from happening. And, and we're one of those partners. Excellent. Many thanks for the great work that you are doing and taking time with us this morning. Thank you again. I really appreciate it. It was terrific.